Lord, that's our heart this morning, that our lives indeed would be set apart unto you. And Lord, that you would take us and use us for your glory. We want to be tools in the hands of our master. And Lord, we do want to have mouths filled with ceaseless praise because we can't praise you enough for what you've done already. And Lord, let alone what you're going to do. Lord, we ask as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would speak, you would move with power, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, is this working? Okay. All right, well, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. Before we do that, um, I'm gonna, I am going to have a couple of the pastors come on up, if you guys would. Um, if Matt and Jenny would come on up, wherever you guys are. I'm really excited. You know, we live in a college town, right? We have Bethany, we have Cabrillo, and we also, of course, have UCSC. And then not just for the kids who are in college, but for that college age, um, you know, it's been a real burden of mine and probably even more so now that I have three kids who are college age. Um, I'm really burdened for that as well. And so praise the Lord that God has moved on Matt and Jenny's hearts. And starting not tonight, but next Sunday, they're going to be leading, Matt's going to be leading the college group. Jenny's going to be uh, helping him with that. And so we're really excited about that. And I want us to, to join together in praying for them and be reminded to pray for them, not just today, but daily as you pray. Put them on your prayer list. Be praying for our young people. They're at a fork in the road in life. They're making decisions about what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. And you know what? I, I, you know, I know many would love to say, I wish I would have got to know God then. I wish I'd been serving him then. And so let's pray for, for Matt and Jenny, and let's be mindful to continue to pray for them and that entire group on Sunday night. So join me in praying for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and we praise you, Lord, for faithful servants, Lord, who respond to the call you've placed upon their lives. And Lord, for Matt and Jenny, Lord, I pray your hand would be upon them. Pray for Matt, Lord, you'd give him vision and wisdom, Lord. I pray, Lord, that when he teaches your word, it would go forth with power. Lord, I pray for wisdom for both of them as they would counsel and minister to our young people. And Lord, we just ask that in this ministry, Lord, that you would be glorified, that lives would be transformed, that young people would be discipled and grow in the most holy faith. And Lord, we know that if your Holy Spirit doesn't move, it's not going to work. So we pray, Lord, less of us, less of Matt, less of Jenny, and more of you. And Lord, that through this, again, your kingdom would be built up. And Lord, that young people will be on fire for you. Lord, we want to see revival at Bethany, revival at Cabrillo, revival at UCSC, and in all of our young people, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray and ask in Jesus' name that you would do a mighty work. And may we as a church be mindful to pray for them every day. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Amen. Pretty awesome. Good stuff. Love it. All right. Revelation. By way of quick review, and I do mean quick review because I've got a lot of notes. So, (laughs) Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, again, means the unveiling, the apocalypse. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's through the book of Revelation that we get to know Jesus better. Often when people think of the book of Revelation, they think of end times, and we should. And they think of all the, the great tribulation and everything else. But really, remember that the main focus of this book is to better understand Jesus. In chapter 1, we got to see him in his glorified body in heaven. I encourage you, get the CD, grab the tapes. They're always free, always have been, always will be. You can go to the website. But you get a picture of Jesus Christ. 
Then you get to chapter two and three, and that's where we are now. And we see the letters to the seven churches. And I love these letters because in the gospels, we certainly see the Lord talking about the kingdom of God and it's a blessing and a source of encouragement to us. But when we get to chapter two and three of Revelation, we hear our Savior's heart for the church. Now, the first church we saw was the church in Ephesus. Remember, they were a church that did a lot of great works. If you had visited their church, you probably would have thought this is a happening church. They've got so much going on. They're doing so many good works. But you remember that each of these letters, for the most part, is laid out with the Lord speaking to who the church is. Then he gives one of his qualities or characters, things that they've forgotten about, part of his character. And then he tells them what they're doing good. But then he exhorts them, and not all the letters, but most of them, where they're falling short. And in Ephesus, they had lost their first love. And we talked about the fact that, guys, we can be doing all kinds of things for God, but more important than that is to be in intimate fellowship with God. Guys, if we're not in love with him and having intimate fellowship with him, really all those works are in vain. The Bible even says if we have not love, we're like a clanging cymbal. We're just making noise. The second church we saw was a church at Smyrna. Again, I want to meet some of these people. They are convict, it's convicting to me. That was the persecuted church. If you remember, their refusal to make a small compromise where they would go up and burn incense to the emperor once a year. If they were willing to do that, they could have lived their Christian faith. They could have gone without persecution. And instead, because they refused to do that, they were not given a certificate to buy and sell or work. So they were out of work. Their families were being persecuted. This is the time when Christians were being fed to lions. This was a difficult time, but they would not budge. And I'll tell you, I'm so exhorted by them because I know in my own life, I've compromised for far less. I don't know about you. But what I love that they get this letter from the Lord and you would think he would say, hey guys, all your troubles are behind you. You know, you've been persecuted enough. I'm going to fix it. That's not what happened. He told them more's coming. But then he encouraged them and let them know that while the world sees you as poor, you truly are rich. And to that persecuted church, the focus was not on the temporal suffering, suffering, but the eternal reward that is coming. And then two weeks ago, we saw the church at Pergamos. Now the church at Pergamos, where you have the loveless church in Ephesus, the persecuted church in Smyrna, you now have the compromising church in Pergamos. And in Pergamos, what had happened is they had allowed people to come in and teach the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam, again, we don't have time, but that's the compromise where, where there was compromise within the church. And the compromise where it was in the areas of sexual immorality and idolatry. They were bringing in pagan worship, things like that. And the church was, you know, allowing it. There was compromise in the body of Christ. You got to remember something too. In those days, there was one church in the town. It wasn't like, well, I don't like, you know, their music's too loud. I'll go down the street. You know, it's not quite warm enough in there, and the, or the pastor just never stops talking, so I'm going down the street, right? Well, there, you had one church, and if it was compromising, then every believer was exposed to that compromise, and that's what was happening. They had the doctrine of Balaam, and then I also mentioned the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, where we get the word laity, and we talked about the fact that God said he hated the fact that they were putting layers between God and between man and God. And the way they were doing that, they were appointing men in positions of authority. And I mentioned, and my heart is not to offend anybody if this is your background, but I think we need to be educated. I mentioned a very clear picture of that as the Catholic Church today. It grieves the heart of God that men would put themselves as layers between God and man. Guys, we don't go through a priest, we go through the great high priest, Jesus Christ. 
And he's the only one. Now, let me make it clear. It's not just the Catholic Church. It happens in the Protestant Church as well. There's a lot where layers, even the shepherding movement, where you had to go to someone to get their approval. Guys, we go to Jesus Christ. And we don't go through men. We go directly to God. So that brings us this morning to the fourth church that we're going to look at. And the church we're going to look at this morning is Thyatira. Now, before we get into that, I want to give you my outline. I apologize that it's wordy. You're going to see why I have so many notes. But I titled the message this morning, When God's People Won't Stand for Truth. And I put underneath it, When They Elevate Tolerance Above Holiness. We live in a time today that tolerance is supposed to be a good word. Now, compassion to me is a good word. Love is a good word. Grace is a good word. Mercy is a good word. Tolerance of evil is not a good word. And we live in a time when if you're not tolerant, you're considered a bigot. You need to be more tolerant. Well, I, again, we need to be more compassionate, but we must not be more tolerant to the things that go contrary to the word of God. Amen? Well, this church, unfortunately, was being very tolerant. And let's go through the... When, when people won't stand for truth, what starts to happen? One, it's evident they've forgotten who's watching. Hey, guys, when we don't stand for truth, we're trying to please men. And we're trying to please men, we're forgetting that someone else is watching who's far more important than men. And it's, amen, it's Jesus Christ. Number two, our good works will not be enough to overcome our tolerance for evil. You know, the world we live in today thinks the more good I do, that balances off some of the evil I do. Can I make this really clear to you? You can do 10 million good works and it won't blot out one sin. Amen. And we make this mistake thinking there's scales up in heaven. I did a bunch of good stuff, right? And every time I go to church, I get a mark. And if I do, you know, give to the poor. And no, not so much. Here's the reality. One sin and that scale's on the ground. And the only thing that can move it is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So all the good works in the world are not going to save you. And all the good works in the world do not overcome the tolerance for evil. Number three, when God's people won't stand for truth, false teachers will go unchecked. False teachers will teach and teach and teach and people will be caught up in a charismatic personality and they'll just go, hey, and you see it on Christian television. Somebody will say the most outlandish thing you've ever heard that is contrary to scripture and people will be amen and all over the building. And that's what happens when we don't stand for truth. Everything you hear me or any pastor in this church ever say, make sure that it lines up with the word of God. Amen? And if it doesn't, call us on it. We need to be. Number four, when God's people don't stand for truth, rebellious living will replace brokenness and repentance. When there's no truth being stood for, then all of a sudden rebellion is no big deal and brokenness and repentance become odd instead of what should be happening every day. Number five, God will bring divine discipline. And again, to get our attention, God loves us enough that when we're outside of his will, he'll discipline us. Those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. Aren't you glad? I'm very glad he disciplines me because I need it. And he draws me back. Number six, when God's people won't stand for truth, the Lord will encourage the faithful to hold fast because there's always a remnant of faithful even in the midst of the most godless place. Amen? There'll always be those standing for the Lord. And then finally, the Lord will reward those who endured to the end. So let's get to it. Verse 18. When God's people don't stand for the truth, first thing we notice, we've forgotten who's watching. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira 
right. Remember the angel, the word there is messenger. It can either mean a, a messenger that oversees the church spiritually. My personal belief is that it's addressed to the pastor, the messenger of the church. He receives this letter, and then he is called by God to then deliver that truth to the people in his church. Now, each time we get to one of these cities, I take several minutes to give a background because I think it's important. When you understand the shoes that those Christians are walking in, the city that they live in, the environment that they're in, you better understand the exhortation they're receiving from the Lord. So let's talk about Thyatira for a moment. It was located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos, the city we just saw. It was an area that was very rich agriculturally. It was famous for its, its agricultural production. And it was known specifically for its production of a purple dye that came from the mata root that was grown in the area. Now, why is that significant? In those days, purple dye was very, very rare and very, very expensive. And one of the ways that you showed you were wealthy is you walked around wearing purple clothes. And, you know, it just showed people, dude must be rich, he's wearing purple, right? Now, this region was the area where that purple, one of the main areas where that purple was grown and that dye was produced. And so, it isn't, it isn't interesting, though, that when people are extremely wealthy, often they like to let people know it. So, maybe they're wearing a purple dress, right, to all the way to the ground, just letting people know what kind of money they have. Now, in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, there's a woman by the, woman by the name of Lydia, and if you remember that Paul's second missionary journey, she was a woman who worshiped God and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul and she and her household were all baptized and then she begged Paul and his traveling companions to stay in her home. But when she was described in Acts 16, she's described as a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Now I don't know for sure, but it's possible that she was the one who brought the gospel to Thyatira. You know, because she heard it from Paul. No doubt her whole family was baptized. She invited the church into her home, and now she may have been the one to take it back to the city. Now, Thyatira was the smallest and least important of the seven cities. Again, an ancient writer wrote of Thyatira, Thyatira and other unimportant cities. That's how he called it. I don't know what city that would equate to. I'd get in trouble if I say anything, so I'm not going to. Can you imagine? In any city, you say, well, I live, I grew up there, my family. No, wait a minute. named after my dad. I do want to do that, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> but notice, the smallest city and the least important city got the longest letter. Oh, they must be doing great. Well, we'll find out. Not so much. You know what? God sees all, and no one is insignificant. This may be a small town, with maybe a smaller church in a less populated area that seems not as significant, but to God, everyone is significant. Amen? Now, let me tell you a little bit more about this city. It was known for its trade guilds. Now, why is this important? You'll find out in a minute. And why is he telling me this? But let me tell you. These trade guilds were kind of like union shops. Like, if you wanted to work in Thyatira, you had to belong to the guild. If you wanted to work in linen or you wanted to work in agriculture or you wanted to mine gold or whatever it is you wanted to do, if you didn't belong to that guild, you were not allowed to work. You might think, well, okay, so what? Then join the guild. What's the problem? Well, the problem with joining the guild was that every guild had a pagan deity that they worshipped. And if you were to go to a guild meeting, by the way, be careful about some of these things you join. Amen? I'm not talking about unions necessarily. I'm talking about some of these 
you know, societies and fraternities and brotherhoods that you join, a lot of them are built in pagan idolatry. So be careful and watch what you're looking at, okay? But what would happen is they'd have a meeting and then during that meeting, they would worship these pagan deities and then they would have a meal that consisted of meat that had been offered in sacrifice to the pagan gods. And after the meal, it usually you know, degraded into a drunken party filled with sexual immorality and considered to be part of the worship to this deity. So sacrifices, eating food, sacrifices to idol, idols, drunken debauchery, sexual immorality, these were all standard part of the guild meeting. Not exactly a place that Christians should hang out. Amen? But if I don't, work, if I don't go to the meeting, I can't work. This is what was happening in Thyatira. They had a choice to make. So the church is called to be set apart from the world and its pagan idolatry. And so the dilemma for the Christian was be separated and be poor and struggle or just join the guild. They had to face the harsh reality that that was the only way they were going to get work. Now, some would justify joining, right? Well, I got to eat, right? I got to eat, so I've got to do something. And if I don't join the guild, my family's going to starve. And a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, right? So I should compromise. What do you think? Think that's okay? God would say no. You know, the enemy knows how to tempt us. He's going to tempt us with what seems like a better life when in reality the consequences are going to be great. No doubt many of us have faced similar circumstances in our lives. Stand for God and face the consequences from the world or compromise in order to meet my physical needs. Compromise corrupts the church. It destroys our testimony as the world sees us as being no different than they are. Oh, dude, I thought you're, you're a Christian. I saw you at the guild meeting. You're eating stuff sacrificed to idols. You were drinking with everybody else. Why would I want to know your God? So the angel, the messenger in the church, receives this letter. This is the environment they're living in. This is the pressure that the Christians are under. What are they going to do? How should they respond? And this is what it says. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, Jesus, as I said in every letter, reminds the church that he's writing to about some element of his character. And he chooses to remind them first of his deity. He is the Son of God. In those days, they understood clearly. We need to understand today. If you were the son of something, you had the elements of that something you were a son of. He is the son of God because he is God, amen? And there are no other, we are, the Bible calls us sons of God, but we are not the son of God, amen? There's only one son of God and his name is Jesus Christ. And this church needed to be reminded of his deity, that he is God Almighty, the one and only God and Savior of the world. They needed to be reminded they had lost their fear of God and respect for him and were compromising concerning the false gods of this world. When we compromise, we need to be reminded that there is a God, a true and living God, and there's only one, and his name is Jesus. And guys, we need to turn away from the false gods of this world and get our eyes back on him. And that's why he points out and reminds them of his deity. But then he says, one who has eyes like the flame of fire. You know, if Jesus shows up at your house and the fiery eyes are glowing, I'm thinking not a good thing. Amen? I, uh, that's probably why you fall over like a dead man of the fiery eyes. I can't take it, right? But you know what this speaks of? The fact that God sees everything. He sees everything. The stuff you don't want him to see, he sees. The Bible says in Hebrews, 
Everything is naked and open before him. He sees those things, including when we're compromising. And he saw those who were showing up to the trade guilds and compromising and doing those things and saying, you know, going to church on Sunday and the trade guild on Saturday night. That might have hit somebody this morning. Maybe you're out at a bar last night in your church this morning. Hey guys, let's live consistent, amen? Let's be holy and set apart unto the Lord. Let's not compromise like the world. And that's what was happening. They were becoming tolerant of evil and they need to be reminded of the fact that God is watching and that he is the standard for judgment, not the culture. Amen? Well, everybody else is doing it. Don't you hate it when your kids say that? Well, all my friends are doing it. So what? Who cares what all your friends are doing? How lame is it for us to tell God that? Well, God, everyone else is doing it. Well, do we want to go where everyone else is going that doesn't know him? I'm thinking no. Amen? The church in Thyatira had abandoned his standard and taken the world's instead. And the culture had become the plumb line instead of the word of God. It then said, it says his feet were like fine brass, and brass speaks of judgment in Scripture. Remember the brass pole with the serpent on it we talked about on Good Friday? The bronze altar. Jesus not only sees all, but righteously judges all, coming down on unrighteous and unrepentant with both feet. Both his bronze feet. The words this corrupt and compromising church needed to hear because they had lost their fear of God as a righteous judge. And guys, he is a gracious and a loving Savior. Let's not forget that. A righteous judge, but a gracious and loving Savior. And so it's important that we see him for all of who he is. He is both holy and a righteous judge. So when God's people won't stand for the truth, when they elevate tolerance above holiness, We've forgotten who's watching. Number two, our good works will not be enough to overcome our tolerance for evil. Look at verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, are the last are more than the first. So not only do they have good works, but their good works were growing. The church in Thyatira was busy and hardworking. In many ways, they appeared again to be a model church. They had love for one another and certainly a certain level of love for God. It says they had service. Again, they were a busy and hardworking church ministering to the needs of others. The word service there is diakona or diakonia, where we get the word deacon in scripture. They were ministering to the physical needs of the church. So the physical needs were being met. They were a church that loved each other. Sounds good so far. They had faith. They had belief, assurance, conviction. The believers in Thyatira did not hide their faith. They believed that Jesus is the Savior, the Creator, God come in human flesh. And their statement of faith probably was hanging in the foyer of their church. And if you read it, you'd probably think they were a great church. It also says they were patient. It's the word hoopamony you've heard me talk about before, which speaks of endurance and consistency. So they had been a people of love, a people of service, a people of faith. And they'd had patience. Now you hear all this so far, this church sounds pretty good. You'd say, Lord, I, I pray that that would be said of us. Well, guess what? These believers, again, though they weren't quitters and they remained steadfast and faithful, their conviction and their consistency, again, those two things were there. But we see as long with conviction and consistency, there was also compromise. He then says, though, that your works 
at the last are more than the first. This is a high compliment. What he's saying is, not only do they have these works, but they're growing in number and they're growing in measure. And again, it would be great if the letter ended right here. You guys are wonderful. You're growing. You have love. You have faith. You have service. You have patience. And you're growing in your walk with God. The end. That's not what happens. Because again, God does see all. And seeing all, he will be pointing out the fact that there are areas that need to change. So when God's people won't stand for the truth, elevate tolerance above holiness, we've forgotten who's watching, our good works will not be enough to overcome our tolerance for evil, and here comes the big one. False teachers will go unchecked. Now watch what happens. Verse 20. Nevertheless, you know, when it, in these letters to the seven churches, you don't want this here. Nevertheless, Here's what he's saying. Despite every good thing I just said, despite all of that, nevertheless, we've got problems. Despite everything you've done, despite all the good Jesus sees in the church, there are significant problems. And he says this, I have a few things against you. The word against there means an opposition and intensity. You know, I don't want Jesus to have intense opposition against me. How about you? Amen. And what brings such intensity and opposition to the church at Thyatira from the heart of God? Here's what it is. Here's what he says. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Things done changed in one verse. Amen? Service, faithfulness, patience. Oh, but I've got a problem. You're allowing that false teacher to get up in front of the church and promote sexual immorality and idol worship. I'm thinking that's a problem in the church. And guess what? It's the only church in Thyatira. You can just walk in and go, that's wrong. I'm going down the street. This problem needed to be fixed. Now, it's interesting. He says, you allow. The word you there is in a singular form. And I believe he's specific, speaking most specifically to the pastor. This letter is written to the angel of the church, and he's saying to the pastor, you allow a false teacher to teach in your church. That's heavy. Now, I will say this. It brings fear and trembling to me as a pastor when I read things like this. And sometimes people get a little frustrated with me that I'm not very quick to allow people to teach here. And they get frustrated. Well, read that verse again and then let me know how frustrated you are. I'm going to be accountable for all, to Almighty God one day for every person who teaches in the women's study, the men's study, the youth group, the college group. Hey, lay hands on no man quickly, the Bible says. Amen? And here they have this prophetess, Jezebel. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not her name was really Jezebel or this was a title. Because in the Old Testament, Jezebel was not good. If you go to 1 Kings, she was the wife of King Ahab, a guy who often battled with Elijah. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and she was the one who brought idol worship into Israel. She brought idolatry into Israel when King Ahab intermarried with this pagan woman, and she brought idolatry. So she introduced the worship specifically of Baal and Ashtaroth to the Israelites. She was the one that had all the prophets, or tried to, have all the prophets of the Lord massacred. 
She caused Elijah to proclaim a drought upon Israel that lasted three and a half years. She sought to have Elijah killed after he defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and she made false accusations against Naboth, resulting in him being, put, being stoned to death because her husband wanted his vineyard. How, you know, do you think very many people would be naming their daughter Jezebel? You know, you don't have a whole lot of Judases today, right? Hitlers, right? You don't really name your kids after people who are notoriously evil. That's why my personal perspective is that she's being called a Jezebel more as a title for her behavior than her real name. It says in 1 Kings, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And things didn't end too well for Jezebel. It says in 2 Kings, And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of, of Jezebel, and there shall be none to bury. She was eaten by dogs in the end. Again, I'm thinking if you're flipping through the Bible looking for names for your daughter, not so much. <laughs> Wicked, vile person eaten by dogs. Let's choose that one. I don't think so. <laughs> so again, I believe this is a title for an evil woman rather than her actual name. So this Jezebel is doing the same in the church that Queen Jezebel did to the children of Israel. What is she doing? She's bringing sexual immorality and idolatry right into the church. Now, you might say, oh, who would tolerate that? You know, I was watching. I never do this, and I know that God had me. I was flipping. I got home from the softball, church softball game. I'm not playing yet. But by the way, I feel better than I have felt in a year yeah. by the grace of God. Amen. I mean, I feel 100% back to my normal self, and this week was the first time I felt that way. So I'm just praising God. But I was flipping through, and we came home from the softball game, and they, there was this thing on a church, a local church, and it said, coming up, and I, I thought, well, let me watch this. And it started off with this young youth pastor who seemed to be pretty on fire for God. Maybe some of you saw it. And then they started this prophetess, the self-proclaimed prophetess within this church started prophesying to the church. And people started elevating her word at least equal to, if not above, the word of God. Well, this prophetess took a shine to this youth pastor who was married and told him that his wife was going to die on December 18th and that she was going to then be his new wife. Um, that's biblical. So here's the thing. <laughs> December 18th, this is on, it was on Dateline. December 18th, his wife doesn't die. So what does that make her? Liar, Liar false prophet. How many times does a prophet have to be wrong to be a false prophet? Once. So she's a false prophet. So then she tells him, God has shown me that he's freed up your hands to take part in bringing about his will, basically saying, so you need to kill your wife. The sad part is he does it. He fills her with Benadryl, knocks her out, sets his house on fire, and she dies. A church would never let a false prophetess in. This just happened. Sad part is that he started listening to her words and then he went around telling women in the church that God told me that you can comfort me because I'm alone. And he started sleep with sleeping with six different women in the church, five of whom were married. How does this happen? When the word of God ceases to be the standard and we start elevating the word of men above the word of God. Guys, this is why we can never do this. These women were being interviewed, and they said, but he's such a charismatic guy, and he seems so godly. And when he told me, he quoted scripture. Dude, you need to repent. Amen? 
Take a text out of context, all you got left is a con. Remember that, right? And that's what this guy was. And praise God, he got caught finally when one of the husbands found out, blew the gig on him. The prophetess, he ended up marrying one of the women, and it wasn't the prophetess, so she got mad. Your sin will surely find you out, amen? And he's sitting in prison where he belongs. But the point is that I watched that, and I thought, modern-day Jezebel. False prophets. This woman had come into the church, but here's the problem. Why was she allowed to continue to teach? Because the pastors and the people would not stand up and say, that is wrong. They were more tolerant than they were holy. People get mad when I say this. There are churches today that are doing things that are pagan in nature. We should not have statues of saints in here. Amen? Amen. Why not? There are dead people like us who would be grieved if you knew that. If I, if I died, do not put a statue of me up in here. <laughs> Amen? It'd scare everyone off anyway, but don't do that. The point is that when people magnify saints and magnify men and put up statues and they're praying to the statue or praying to a, you know, I got a saint so-and-so around my neck. That saint so-and-so is not going to help you. That's pagan in nature. We don't seek after a saint to help us. We don't go kiss the foot of a statue in worship. We praise the true and living God. He tore the veil. It's slapping our Savior in the face to go to anyone else but Him. Amen? Amen? And it's Oh, that's intolerant. Right? Pastor Dave, you're a bigot and you're intolerant. You're not very nice. And this is going to go over well on TV. But guys, the Lord loves us and it breaks his heart when people would turn to anyone but him because only he died on the cross. You know, God used Peter mightily, but he is not to be worshipped. And he'd be the first one to tell you that because when they tried to worship him, he told them to stand up. Yeah, you see people today that say they followed in the line of Peter receiving worship. That is not the heart of our God. We're not to tolerate evil. So it says there, notice what it says about her. She calls herself a prophetess. She was a self-proclaimed prophetess. She was one who claimed to speak for God. And again, as we know, she's actually a false prophet. And Jesus, again, had this against them that they allowed her to teach. Because you allow her to teach. Matthew 24 says, these false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's Jesus speaking. And there's the fulfillment. False prophets were rising up and deceiving many. These words were first spoken in view of the end times, but there have always been those who call themselves prophets in the church, but are not. And all gifts and prophecy is to be tested against the word of God. So this church had fallen into the trap of elevating the word of men above the word of God. You know where we see this? All the cults. What did every cult do? They elevated the word of man above the word of God, right? The Mormon church. Pastor Dave, your name and names. The Mormon church was founded by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was a fairy tale writer who said that he went out into the woods, met the Italian angel Moroni, was given some golden plates, came up with the Book of Mormon, and they elevated the word of Joseph Smith above the word of God. How do we know that? Because it contradicts the word of God. The word of God says what? There is only one God, amen? The Mormon church teaches that all of us will be gods of our own planet if we are good. I'm glad that's not true. Amen? 
And that the God of our planet used to be a man on another planet who became God because he was a good man on that planet. And this is why there, there used to be at least polygamy and you've got to populate your planet. You're going to take your wives and your children with you to start your planet, so you need a bunch of family. He also taught that Jesus and Satan were brothers. And people believe that. Why? Because they elevate the word of man above the word of God. What about Islam? They elevate the word of Muhammad above the word of God. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because all of this can be avoided if we will make the word of God the standard for everything. Amen. It's when we get away from it that we can be, fall for the false prophet, we can fall for people like the Nicolaitans adding layers between God and man. And we can fall for the, what the cults teach because we have elevated the teaching of a man above the word of God. No man's words are infallible. Amen? Amen. Nobody. When people tell you that so-and-so's word is infallible, it's not true. All words must be tested against, not elevated above the word of God, and again, especially those of a self-proclaimed prophet. You know, be careful. Don't be quick to give yourself a title. Amen? I get worried when so, somebody introduces me. I've had people say, I'm prophet so-and-so. Really? Interesting. So if you're wrong once, will you be false prophet so-and-so? Right? Be careful. Be careful. Don't give yourself a title. You know, if God is working through you, people will see what God is doing and you won't have to publicize it. Yeah. Amen? So, what was this false prophetess proclaiming to the church in Thyatira? Here's what she was saying. She was teaching them to, to, teach, to teach and seduce his servants, the Lord's servants, so these are Christians, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. She was teaching the Christians they could participate in sexual immorality more than likely at the trade guild meetings. Well, you got to eat, so go ahead and go to the meeting, and kind of like the Gnostic teaching, as long as you believe in, in Jesus in your heart, it doesn't matter how you live, just go be with the world. That's what she was teaching. And, of course, God saw that for what it was. The flesh, again, is evil, it doesn't matter what you do, and Jezebel was an immoral and ungodly false prophetess who had been given a place of influence in the church and was leading people into sin. Part of, again, what happened in that guild was not only sexual immorality, but idolatry and the worship of false idols. So why would these, why would the Lord's servants fall for this? Why did the people in that church in Washington fall for that woman's words? Why did that youth pastor fall for it? Because usually a false prophet is going to cater to your fleshly desires. Right? You know, being a Mormon sounds pretty good. Let me tell you about it. You're going to be God of your own planet. Really? Okay. And you can have as many women as you want. Okay. Right? So you're going to be God and you can have as many women as you want. Tell me that's not feeding the flesh of men. Right? Well, that sounds pretty good. I, where do I sign up for that program? That sounds great. And that's exactly what most false prophets do. Rarely does a false prophet tell you that you need to be broken. Right? It's always just the opposite. The false prophet tells you all the great and wonderful things that God wants to do for you and in you if you'll just join his group. You know what? It rid them of their need to stand against persecution because she said, just go join them. The monthly guild meeting was now a time of fulfilling fleshly desire instead of making a spiritual stand for the truth 
of God's word. The draw of the guilds, no doubt, was very powerful. But you know what? It was also a pagan place that Christians had no business in. And having that woman get up and say that it's okay was just enough that some of the weaker Christians needed to go run and join that group. Guys, here's the reality. Our belief is reflected in our behavior. It's not who we say that we serve. It's how we live that proves who we serve. The Bible says, by your fruit they shall know you. And we must not fall for this Gnostic lie that as long as we believe, it doesn't matter how we behave. And let me just share from my heart with you for a minute. I am so gripped right now. As I was studying this, I spent, I can't tell you how many, just hours weeping about this. Let me tell you why. I am so gripped that there are so many people that think they're going to heaven because they prayed a prayer and walked an aisle and their life has never borne any fruit ever. And if you're here this morning and you're putting your faith in the fact that you prayed a prayer and you walked an aisle, there had better be fruit in your life because by your fruit they shall know you. I'm not saying that works save you, but works are fruit of salvation. Amen? And if you live a life where you just like the world, you got a mouth like the world, you got passions like the world, you pursue the things of the world, and there's little or no room for God in your daily life, you are not a Christian. Oh, Pastor Dave, this is not very tolerant. This is the intolerant message. That's why I should have titled it. But you know what? I'd rather tell you as your pastor than have you live this life and then stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day and you pull out your get-out-of-hell-free card and he says, that's not going to work because you didn't really give your life to me. You may have made me Savior for the moment, but he needs to be the Lord of our life completely. Amen? Amen? That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's just grips my heart when I think about it because I know so many, and again, I, I, please, I'm a sinner saved by grace and I blow it. And I blow it every day, okay? But that being said, I've got coworkers that tell me they're Christians. One guy, he slept with 20 women in the last six months. He's drunk all the time. His life's out of control and curses like a sailor and, and takes God's name in vain. And then he tells me he's a Christian. I, I'm sorry. So again, I'm not saying, I'm just saying my heart breaks. I say, bro, the Holy Spirit won't let you live that life for very long. I'm not saying we don't do those things on occasion, but when we do, we're gripped and we're broken about it. Amen? And it draws us to a place of repentance. Guys, He must be more than Savior. He must be Lord. He must be on the throne of our lives. When God's people won't stand for truth, false teachers will go unchecked. Next, rebellious living will replace brokenness and repentance. Look at verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Here we see the mercy of God. Amen? Jesus' greatest accusation against this woman is verse 21. The greatest accusation is not even all the things she had done. It's her refusal to repent. Guys, we're going to go, if we spend eternity separated from God... We're going to spend eternity separated from God because we chose not to repent. Amen? One sin will get us into hell, but we can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb if we will repent. If we will turn and give our lives to Jesus Christ. But if we choose not to repent, this is the greatest accusation that he is making against her. The word repent there means to think differently, to reconsider to turn away from her rebellious and wicked behavior. And again, we see here both the mercy and the judgment of our Lord. She was a woman living a life not only of personal rebellion and wickedness, but she was leading others into sin. So here's God's mercy. 
The Holy Spirit's bringing conviction. He's calling her to repent, and he gives her time to repent. I've heard people say many times, well, that just doesn't seem fair. I promise you, if God is bringing righteous judgment, there's been plenty of time to repent before that ever happened. Amen? Think in your own life. When God finally brings that divine discipline and righteous judgment, didn't he give you many, many opportunities to repent first? What's the answer? Be honest. Amen? I know in my own life, the Holy Spirit's convicting me, and I, and I may just keep going down that road. And finally, because he loves me, he's going to bring divine discipline. Well, in her case, she refused to repent. Sometimes we may wonder why God allows some to continue in such open rebellion, especially those who blaspheme his name and cause others to stumble, or use his name to, for personal gain and to fleece the weak. Lord, why don't you just smoke them with a bolt of lightning, right? You ever thought of that? If you notice for others, it's judgment for yourself, it's mercy. I mean, I know I'm guilty of that, right? But why does he wait? Why does he suffer long? Because of his mercy. Because he's a gracious God. When righteous judgment finally does come, you can rest assured that there's been many opportunities to repent. So she'd been given opportunity. She'd been drawn by the Holy Spirit. She refused, and it says there, she did not repent. She knew she was doing wrong. God confronted her in her sin, and he brought back, again, that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And she did not respond with brokenness and repentance, but a hard heart and continued rebellion. You know what? There are some people in a room this size, in a group this size this morning, that God has been convicting you by his Holy Spirit that you need to change and you have not repented. Amen? And with that being said, that's probably true to some degree for all of us in some aspect of our lives. God gives us time to repent. But there is not an unlimited amount of time. There is a time when God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Each of us has been given both time and opportunity to repent, and now we must respond. How have you responded? Broken and repentant or hard-hearted continuing in your sin? God indeed suffers long, but he won't suffer always. And when the Holy Spirit draws us to himself or convicts us to repent, our response must never be delayed. For the Christian... The Holy Spirit convicts us every day, doesn't He? And when He does, we need to repent. When we sin, we need to keep short accounts with God. And we need to repent immediately. I believe the sign of spiritual maturity is the distance in time between when we sin and when we repent. It ought to get shorter and shorter and shorter as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Amen? For the unbeliever of lack of repentance, the rejection of the Holy Spirit's draw and conviction, the choice to continue on in your own rebellion forces righteous God to bring righteous judgment. Nobody's going to stand before God on judgment day and say that's not fair. Nobody. Because he's going to show us all of our sin. He's going to show us the opportunities we had to be saved. He's going to show us the divine appointments with others who shared the truth with us and our continued rejection. And unfortunately, there will be more that reject him than those who receive him. The Bible tells us that. So when God's people won't stand for the truth, rebellious living will replace brokenness and repentance. And then we see in verse 22 and 23, God will bring divine discipline. Look what it says there. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. So God will make people sick if they don't repent? Is that what happened to me, I guess? Maybe I got sick because I didn't repent? I believe this. God brings divine discipline. And in this case, it's interesting that he calls it a sickbed. 
because one of the greatest sins she was promoting was sexual immorality, right? And I don't believe that God gives someone the flu because they're sinning. Here's what I believe. I believe that He allows the sin you're committing to have consequences. And in the case of sexual immorality, Pastor Dave's personal opinion, I have no proof of it, I believe the the sickbed, in this case, could very well be sexually transmitted diseases. Okay, you're going to be sexually immoral? Go right ahead. Look what the consequences are. There's nothing new under the sun today. Have you noticed how when a a disease comes out that is a result of sexual immorality, that the whole focus is on finding a cure instead of changing the behavior? Right? We've got to get a cure for AIDS. How about we do this? How about we get married and remain faithful to our spouse for a lifetime and you won't have to worry about it? Right? Now, some innocent people get it through blood and different things, and please, I'm not saying we shouldn't minister to them. But what I'm saying is, most of these are consequences of sinful behavior. And the Lord's saying, because she won't repent, and because of her behavior, I'm going to allow some heavy things to come upon her. As Christians, we must be on guard so we don't enter into sins of others. That's what happens, because it says there, and those who commit adultery with her, into great tribulation. I'm going to bring trials into the lives of those who sin with her. So guys, as Christians, we walk into a room and three people are gossiping. What should we do? Walk away. There's crude speech and behavior. Walk away. Ungodly entertainment, drugs and alcohol, pornography. Don't walk, run away. Like Joseph, right? Flee youthful lust. You become like those you hang out with. You want to know the person you are, look at your friends. I hate to say this, if your friends are druggies, you're a druggie. If your friends are out of control, so were you. Guys, now, we should reach out to them in love, and we're sinners saved by grace. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, and we're not better than anyone else. But with that being said, we need to be cautious about who we choose to make our company. Amen. You become like those you hang out with. If you, that's why we should abandon ungodly friendships and unhealthy relationships. Why? Because they will cause us to fall into sin. So, we see that the sins of people have consequences, and God allows them to come. And the reference here, again, no doubt, is not only to physical adultery that she's talking about, but also spiritual adultery. Guys, when we worship anyone but God, we are committing spiritual adultery. This is why idol worship grieves the heart of God so much. We're choosing to cheat on the groom that we're married to with a false god, and that's spiritual adultery. It says, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Again, he rebuked them for allowing her to teach. He now gives a harsh warning to those who would choose to participate in her sin. You know, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. We could do testimonies for the next 10 months and have people get up and say, I chose to sin, and here's how it worked out for me. The way of the transgressor is hard. And he's telling them the great tribulation comes. Sin produces great trouble. You've heard me say it. It's a quote you've heard before. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God knows that when we sin, it will harm us. And he knows what it will do to our bodies, to our minds, to our spirits. And that's why he forbids it. And then he says this at the end. Here's the hope. He says, I will cast them into the sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. There's the good news. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, that's me, I've been blowing it. 
But here we have the purpose behind his divine discipline. To draw them to repent of their deeds. They wouldn't listen to Jesus before. And often he speaks louder when we're in a place of, of trouble and trial. And it's often not until we come to the end of ourselves that we will finally look up. You know, often we'll continue in sin until we're hit by the consequences. You know, as a pastor, I've done a lot of counseling over the years. And there are people that have lived a lifestyle for a long time until the consequences come and all of a sudden, oh, I better get right. Premarital sex until there's a pregnancy or a sexually transmitted disease. Drinking and drugs until you get a DUI or you wreck your car or you lose your job or you get cirrhosis of the liver. Cheating on your taxes until you get an IRS audit. Lying, stealing, and cheating until you get caught. Pornography or adultery until it ruins your marriage and you lose the respect of your family and friends. The pursuit of wealth and power until it destroys your marriage and you have broken relationships with your kids and major health issues or death of one close to you finally gets your attention that there's more to life than making money. The compromise in your home until your family is corrupted. Sin's consequences are obviously needed to get our attention. So the purpose behind this divine discipline, to draw them to repent and to serve, secondly, as an example of holiness to the other churches. Look at verse 23. I will kill her children with death. Who's speaking? Jesus. Jesus says, I will kill her children with death. The word death there is pestilence, disease. And children, he's not speaking of Jezebel's physical children. He's speaking of those who have chosen to follow after her teaching. Those who say, okay, yeah, great. I can go down to the guild and sleep around and it's all good. So I will kill them with death, with pestilence. I will kill her followers with pestilence. I will allow the consequence of their behavior to come upon them, and it's going to be heavy. God's righteous judgment upon Jezebel and her followers is going to serve as a solemn warning and example to all the churches, not to tolerate evil, but to make a stand for holiness. Again, he will kill her children, but notice what he says. Why would he do this? And it says, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. He is allowing this to happen so all the churches would know. So heavy would this judgment be that it would, be, it would get the attention of all the other Christian churches to serve as a heavy warning not to tolerate evil. When you see another Christian fall, what does it do? Part of us says, what was he thinking? But I'll be honest with you. The primary thing that happens to me is, Lord, don't let that be me. Lord, don't let me make that mistake. He searches. I am he who searches. The word searches there is sees. I see those eyes of fire. And what does he see? He sees the mind and the heart, the intellect and the emotions. Jesus is saying, I know your every thought, your every feeling. You may fool man, but God knows exactly what's going on in your heart. And here's the promise. And I will give to each one according to your works. Based on what he sees and knows to be true, not what we may have convinced others to believe. Jesus knows the truth behind our works. He knows our motivation, our thoughts and our feelings. Our gifts and our, our judgment will be based on who we really are, not who we've convinced others that we are. I'm going to go through the last couple points here fairly quickly. Got up here a little late, so it's raining anyway, right? When God's people won't stand for the truth, the Lord will encourage the faithful to hold fast. Look at verse 24. Now to you, I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have the doctrine, 
We have not known the depths of, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on them no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Here's the exhortation to those who are being faithful. Keep being faithful. I know you're surrounded by evil. You keep being faithful. Maybe it looks like not very many others are following after me. You don't worry about them. You keep being faithful. Though none shall go, I, still I will follow. And he's exhorting them. Notice he says the depths of Satan. I find it interesting that most of the time when you, you hear someone who's in a cult or a false teacher, they always tell you they have deeper truths. Oh, we got the deeper truths over at our church. You got to come over here. Got the prophets coming on Wednesday, man. You got to come. You can't miss it. The deeper truths are coming. Stuff that no one else has ever heard before. If no one else has ever heard it, I don't want to hear it. Amen? If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. It's in the Word, amen? amen? And they got deeper truths, but you tell them, hold fast to what you have, to the truth, to the sound doctrine of God's Word. Don't be distracted. Don't be re- discouraged. Remain faithful. Hold fast. Now, how long must they hold fast? Here's what he says, till I come. So we hold fast till Jesus Christ comes back. Guys, Jesus is coming back. Amen? And when He comes, may He find us busy about His work. Let's hold fast to the truth without compromise, even in the midst of a, perfect, a perverse and, and, and wicked generation. And finally, when God's people won't stand for the truth, the Lord will reward those who endure until the end. Look at verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels. Guys, did you know that when Jesus returns... And we return with him for the millennial kingdom. The Bible tells us that we will rule and reign with him. You remain faithful. Right now it might be difficult, but when I come back, I'm going to reward you greatly, and you're going to rule with me upon the earth. To the overcomers, Jesus offers a share of the kingdom to rule and reign with him. And guys, when Jesus is reigning, sin and evil will not be tolerated. Do you know that? It won't be. Jesus will rule and reign on the earth and I can't wait. It says he will rule with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm chapter 2. In that day, righteousness will be enforced, and those who rebel against Jesus will be dashed to pieces like a clay pot hit with an iron bar. No chance. But again, Jesus includes this here to give hope to the faithful Christians of Thyatira who felt overwhelmed by the immorality and idolatry all around them. He reminds them they're on the winning team, and guess what? In the end, it's going to be great. God's going to bless them. The word rule there also means to shepherd. So the rule won't just be executing judgment, but it'll also be administrating mercy and, and love and direction to those whom they have over them. Then it says, as I have received from my father. So just as the father gave the son the power to rule over the nations, so the son will give the same to us. Overcoming sin and temptation is never easy. It's only possible with God's help, but it's always worth it. Let's finish up. And I will give him the morning star. If you will overcome and endure to the end, you're going to rule with God, but I will give you the morning star. Who's the morning star? Jesus is saying, you overcome to the end, and I'm going to give you me. Can there be a greater reward in the world than that? What's a greater reward than intimate fellowship and an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ? 
And that's what he says, because the Bible tells us that he is the bright and morning star. Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And guess what? There's going to be darkness during the great tribulation. But when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns with the millennial kingdom, it's going to be brighter here than it's ever been before. Finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter applies to everyone. Those who, like Jezebel, are leading others into sin, they can still repent. It applies to those who follow the teaching of a Jezebel and follow others into sin. It applies to those who permit a Jezebel to proclaim her witness openly and don't stand up against it. And it applies to those who hold fast. God has called us to be holy, to stand for the truth, not to tolerate evil and sin. So in closing... When God's people won't stand for truth, we've obviously forgotten who's watching. Our, God works, our good works will not be enough to overcome our tolerance for evil. False teachers will go unchecked. Rebellious living will replace brokenness and repentance. Sin will be rampant in the church. God will bring divine discipline, in, and again, in a desire to get our attention. And then finally, the Lord will encourage the faithful in the midst of this generation to hold steadfast, and the Lord will reward those who endure to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you that you are a God of love and grace and mercy. We also know, Lord, that you are a righteous and a holy God who does not tolerate evil. Lord, I pray for us that we would, we would not be self-righteous, that we would not be people who are sin inspectors running around trying to inspect everyone else's life. But at the same time, Lord, I pray we would be those who would measure what we're taught against the Word of God. We would be those who hold a holy and divine standard. Lord, that we would not compromise so that we can fit into the world, but Lord, instead, we would stand for truth. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world, that as we stand for truth, it would cause others to wonder why. What is it that we have that they need? And again, they're all in captivity to their sin, but Lord, that's all of us apart from you. And Lord, may we reach out to them in love. If there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know the Lord, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. The reason that Jezebel was going to face such harsh, harsh judgment is she refused to repent. This morning, God is giving an opportunity for each and every one of us to turn away from the life we've been living and turn and give our lives to Jesus Christ. Again, I'm not asking you to join Calvary Chapel. We don't have church membership. But here's an opportunity as the free gift of salvation is being offered openly. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Today is an opportunity for you to confess. And all you need to confess is, I'm a sinner. Jesus is God. I believe he died in my place. I want him to not just be Savior of my life, but Lord. Invite him in. He will forgive you. You'll be a new creation in Christ. You'll never be the same, and you'll be going to heaven. If that's anybody's desire here at all, I just want to pray that simple prayer with you. Again, you confess him before man, he'll confess you before his Father in heaven. If that's your desire to do that this morning, if you want to know for sure you're going to heaven, if you don't want to fall into the trap of Jezebel who refused to repent, but you recognize your need to and you want to do that this morning, I just want you to stand to your feet so I can pray with you. Anybody at all. Today's the day of salvation. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? Oh, praise the Lord. God bless you. Anybody else?
For these who are standing, just pray with me out loud. The Lord loves you, and everyone here is for you. Let's pray this out. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me. I want you to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. Help me to walk with you. I believe that Jesus died in my place. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good. Amen. I know I say it every time, but I mean it every time. The Bible says when one person is saved, all the angels in heaven rejoice. So there's a party in heaven. There ought to be a party in here. Let's stand up and worship the Lord. Amen.